I want to begin with a few things, if I may. Uh, Let's uh, look at the reality of divorce, if we can. Firstly, it is painful. I think we know that. Uh, Many say, and psychologists argue, that it is more wrenching than than the death of a spouse. And also other things that are regularly brought up uh, are that the sense of failure and guilt can be overwhelming, if not for many years. Divorce is painful. We know that. Divorce, secondly, is prevalent... Although headlines state that the divorce rate is lower than it was 20 years ago, that statistic is very much masked by the lower number of people actually getting married because many couples are now opting to just live together with an expectation of impermanence. Looking at the statistics, though, if you would go back 40 years ago, around 25% of marriages ended in divorce. Now the figure is just under 50%. A government report about five or six years ago identified that the total direct cost to the taxpayer in this country was £15 billion per year. In that same report, 60, 000, of the 60,000 children living in care in this country, that number's just reduced a little bit, 98% of them are there due to divorce and family breakdown. There are those, of course, who do benefit uh, and capitalise on divorce. Lawyers do very well, of course as they do in every area of life, it seems to me. Um, Some even celebrate uh, divorce. There is a rising trend in divorce parties. And if you don't believe me, you can go to divorcepartyplanner.co.uk and get all the advice you want there. Obviously, that's a joke, uh, but then we can go on. Moonpig, the great card makers, which some of you might get your cards from, they now have a whole card section on divorce to celebrate divorce, as uh, you can send to a friend. They even have uh, very interesting things. Uh, the one I thought was uh, slightly sad, but there we go. It said, yay, ditched him. And you can send that to someone who's had divorce. It's not happy. It's not a good situation, is it? Thirdly, third point is that divorce is challenging. In a number of ways, we've heard about the pain. It will also be a challenge to us as Christians, as it is a way that we can be wonderfully distinct from the culture around us who view marriage in a very disposable way. Also, I want to recognise I'm not just speaking to married folk here. We can be distinctive too as a church as we protect marriages. The point being that married people are off limits. Whatever the state of their relationship with their spouses, even if they are a day before a divorce, they are off limits. If, you, if they are married, our only role in that marriage is to build it up, to encourage the marriage. And that may mean to get as far away from that marriage as possible so that you are not culpable uh, in, its, uh, in its breakup or a distraction because the, the main thing you want is for restoration to occur. We can be wonderfully distinctive in this. But sadly, as we look around, uh, the married person is no longer off limits. The challenge for divorce will also be felt here amongst us as we try to love each other biblically. The great challenge as we do that is to try and mingle love and tender compassion with the tough love of encouraging obedience to God's word. There's a number of challenges, isn't there? We must all work to protect marriages and understand divorce in a way that honours God, however countercultural that may be, we must avoid that flippant attitude that we see in card makers and party planners uh, with regard to divorce. 
Another, I mean, just a quote to show you how flippant some become. The actress Jaja Gabor, who was famously married nine times, once said this, I'm an excellent housekeeper. Every time I get a divorce, I keep the house. I mean, it's just so flippant and very sad. The reality is that the average divorce in the UK now costs <coughs> average £30,000. It's just in the in material kind of the dealings of it. But if you live in SW, wherever we live, wherever we live, you do the maths and you work out if the average is that, it's going to cost a lot more here. More than a third of couples who get divorced are forced to sell their marital homes when they split up. Perhaps the reality of divorce is better voiced by that genius comedian Robin Williams who once said, Ah yes, divorce, from the Latin word meaning to rip out a man's genitals through his wallet. Excuse the coarse humour, but I hope you realise that is more the reality of what we're talking about financially and personally. I recognise that there are people here who have gone through a divorce and there will be people here considering a divorce. And there will be people here who have all sorts of presuppositions about divorce. And what I want to do here today simply is this. Is I want to see what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. I want to show you what God says about divorce and remarriage. I want to do that, one, to show you what God says through his word, but also because of the purposes of church discipline. So you know the right expectations uh, within our church community here. This is hard. And I speak with a heavy heart because people I love have been and are right now deeply pained by the effects of struggling marriages, potential breakups and divorce. And I want you to know that I'm not here to judge or condemn. My job is to be a pastor. And part of that role is sometimes to wrap my arms around you when appropriate, but it's also to lovingly teach you what God reveals in his word, the Bible however hard that is for me or you to hear. Firstly then, let's look at the subject of divorce, which is far less contentious than the subject of remarriage. Firstly, let's acknowledge that before we go into kind of what divorce is and and, um, how and when it's permitted, let's look at the nature of biblical marriage. Quick summary, because Ash will be looking at this in far more detail over our summer series in Genesis 1 to 3. But a few basics to begin with. On biblical marriage. Marriage is a creation ordinance, we call it. That is, it's created by God for all people, whether Christian or not. And the clear meaning of uh, what marriage is can be found in, for example, Genesis 2, verse 28. And it shows that marriage is between two people of opposite sex for life. It is to be publicly recognised, permanent, and a physical relationship. And this teaching is underlined throughout the whole of the Old Testament where the seriousness and significance of that covenant agreement uh, is developed and God shows it to show uh, how much he wants to hold that together. He shows in Malachi 2 verse 16, he simply plainly states, I hate divorce. Begs the question, should we have special concern for marriage and divorce uh, and remarriage? Well, I want to say I think we should. Let me show you why. Divorce can be very destructive, as we've seen. The hurtful impact of broken marriages on on spouses and children and loved ones around them is immense. We know that. Secondly, marriage and divorce and remarriage involve a mingling of a covenant promise and a physical intimacy unlike in any other relationship that we know. We should have special concern for marriage in these regards. 
Certainly, marriage is unique among all relationships that it is set apart by God to signify to the world his relationship between his son and his bride, the church. You can read about that in Ephesians 5, verse 21 following. And therefore, the breaking of this covenant is damaging beyond the couple to the church and their saviour. Fourthly, divorce uh, falls into that group of acts that when they are done, it is very hard to undo. When we commit a sin against someone or uh, in any, any circumstance, it is right and appropriate and important that we say sorry, and that can undo many sins against other people. But divorce and remarriage cannot be undone like that. Well, I hope you've got Mark 10 in front of you. Um, please do open that up. We're on page um, 1014. We turn here first because this is where our questions began uh, from our small groups. Now, let's look at the context. I'm sorry we're not going to spend so long on this, but let me give you a brief idea of where we've come from. The context is the Pharisees asking Jesus, and you see that, is it lawful, verse 2, for a man to divorce his wife? Now, we know in our studies of Mark's Gospel that we're from chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees and teachers of the law have been plotting to have Jesus arrested and killed. And here, what they're probably doing is trying to get Jesus, kind of cajoled, to say something controversial, to damage him, to damage his reputation. Perhaps even to, he might even contradict the law of Moses here. That's what they're trying. But Jesus, what does he do as he commonly did? He responds to their question with what? A question. And we see that in verse 3. What does Moses command you? Verse 4, they reply, don't they? Quoting from Deuteronomy verse 24, verse 1. They reply, saying this, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, Deuteronomy 24, which is what they're quoting back here, permitted divorce in that way. But we must understand what it was. It was a concession. It was allowed to protect the vulnerable women in that society. It was a public and it was an orderly way needing independent witnesses and a certificate. Basically, what it was doing is it protected the women from being divorced privately in their homes and being sent out and left destitute by their husbands. So in that way, it was a kindness, but it was a concession. It was also allowed by God to prohibit someone remarrying their first wife after divorce. And you can read that in the following verses in Deuteronomy 24. Therefore, it is a permission and a governance, not a blessing on divorce. And this concession in the law of Moses was granted, but there was great diversity about how that concession was then applied by the Jews. And it was all surrounding the grounds of divorce that were given in Deuteronomy 24. The ground was given if if something was indecent found in your wife, you could divorce her. What was the something indecent? So a man could divorce his wife for something indecent, but that Hebrew word, uh, something indecent, in the previous chapter was actually the word for excrement. Basically, it was a general term used for something that was repulsive. 
Therefore, what happened is there were varying interpretations. For example, the school of Shammai, a Jewish kind of group, they regarded the indecency of Deuteronomy 24 to refer to what, what we might call as gross indecency. Within the marriage context, that would have been adultery. But it also included other things like incest and bestiality. But the more liberal Jewish factions, such as the school of Hillel, they thought that indecency could even be translated as a badly cooked meal. So, for example, example, if you burnt the toast for your husband over breakfast, you could find yourself divorced by lunch. And that was the reality. So, you see, there's so much behind the Pharisees' question and answer. And there's so much baggage surrounding this issue. Divorce had become, in, this, in the culture in which Jesus is speaking here, an absolute scandal that few wanted to go near or address. For example, Joseph, the, sorry, Josephus, the Jewish historian, himself a divorcee, was a liberal, and he said a man could divorce for whatever reason he wanted. That is the culture that he writes, and this is being spoken into. Now, critical to understanding any portion of the Bible is reading the text in its biblical context. And what the Pharisees had done and what we're all in danger of doing sometimes is that they've taken Deuteronomy 24 and just manipulated that phrase to suit them, how they wanted to apply it. They didn't take the rest of Scripture to control what that verse was saying. They'd ignored, the, for example, the law of Moses just two chapters before, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 13 following, where it clearly states that um, it prohibits kind of an easy divorce for, you know, kind of burning a toast in the morning. What Deuteronomy 24 regulates is a public and orderly form of divorce. It is not a license to just say divorce at will any time, wherever you want. And it's certainly not a blessing for divorce. So where the law was given to protect, it was being manipulated. And the Pharisees had asked here, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the problem is they are asking the wrong question. They're looking for permission to destroy rather than to reconcile and restore. Now that's the context, okay? Jesus' response to the Pharisees shows them why their question is the wrong one. Divorce was only allowed, look at verse 5, because of people's hard hearts. This is a concession, he's saying. And so Jesus reminds them exactly in verse 6, how cast your eyes down to verse 6, Uh, through to verse 9, you'll see Jesus reminding them of God's intention for the marriage relationship. He takes them back to Genesis 2. Jesus is showing that husband and wife are to leave, to be united, to become one flesh. God puts man and woman together. God ordains marriage. It's a coming together of these two people to form this new one team, if you like, for God's good purposes. And therefore we see God's intention for marriage is permanence and it is oneness. But of course, we know the reality of life. Genesis 2, if you are, is, is followed by Genesis 3, where we see the fall of man, sin entering the world. And divorce, therefore, comes as a consequence of sin. But we must understand that it goes against all that God intends for marriage relationships. Divorce is allowed, but it is only a concession. Because of hard hearts. Now look down at verse 10 to 12. These are the more difficult verses, if you like. 
When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Well, we have the first mention of remarriage here. And we'll come back to that issue in a moment. For now, we must re- recognise that within these verses, divorce, and, and pretty much every scholar assumes this, uh, every, uh, yeah, pretty much everyone does, that divorce is assumed and permitted here. But what are the grounds for that legitimate divorce? When can divorce be allowed before God? Essentially, what we need to find out is what is the indecency of Deuteronomy 24, which is understood in this passage as the context. There seem to be two grounds for legitimate divorce within the New Testament. Firstly, adultery. We know that from a plain reading and understanding of Deuteronomy 24, that adultery is the indecency within a marriage. But there's also clear, it's also clear within the parallel passage to this passage in, in Matthew's Gospel. Now, if you want to turn to your sheet or turn to it in your uh, Bibles, Matthew 19, you'll see on your sheet there, I've printed it out, verse 9. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, it reads. And we actually see the same uh, Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Look down on your sheets, you'll see it there. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We see in both of those passages, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, divorce is allowed, is is understood there, but it is as a concession, a last resort. And it is only for the spouse, um, sorry, to those whose spouse has committed adultery. But note that the divorce is not permitted to the one who has committed adultery. So the first ground for the biblical divorce is sexual immorality within the context of marriage. If someone has committed adultery in a marriage relationship, if you like, the innocent party is free, so they are permitted, therefore, to divorce. Now, the second reason divorce is allowed, we're going to turn to different passages now, but... is, the second reason allowed is, is, is that of de- desertion, where the husband or the wife leaves their spouse. Turn, if you, if you want to, uh, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, it's also printed out uh, on your sheets there, verse 10 to 15. Now, we know the context of uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've been looking at 2 Corinthians for a long time. It's a young church. But also there were a number of uh, people married to unbelievers. So Paul says, uh, if you are married to an unbeliever, verse 10 is very clear. Do not separate. Stay together. He says, if if a husband or wife dies, you are free to marry. That's actually in verse 39. It's not printed. Oh, it is printed out in your sheets there. If married to an unbeliever, sorry, stay together. If a husband or wife dies, you are free to marry, but they must be Christians. They must be a believer. But if you look down at verse 15 there, the phrase comes, if someone leaves, the spouse is not bound, and therefore and divorce then is an option. Now, primary in all of these uh, quotes is the desire for reconciliation. 
Paul is very clear. We should not be even thinking about divorce. Verse 10 and 11 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Look at that. They are clear that this must not happen. Paul is very clear. This must be avoided at all costs. Divorce is a tragic last resort. Please note that neither adultery and desertion are necessary grounds for divorce. If someone commits adultery in a marriage relationship, it is far better that the couple is reconciled and restored. So there is little debate, if you like, between scholars on the biblical concessions allowed for divorce. But it is a last resort. I'm sorry this has been brief, but we need to move on. And um, we can ask questions later, I'm sure. Let's now look at the subject of remarriage. Now, you would imagine that, given the number of passages, I mean, they're all printed out there for you in the New Testament, you'd imagine this is quite a simple thing, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, kind of remarriage, this is such a little... No, not at all. There is massive debate on this, and scholars have for years been divided on who and who cannot remarry. However, all agree on this one first point. If a spouse dies... Death breaks the marriage bond. You could read that in Romans 7. I printed that passage out for you there. And also 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39. Now, the issue comes, um, and you'd see that throughout, for example, our little family of churches called Commission. Uh, The staff uh, throughout Commission have differing views on this. And even staff in individual churches have differing views on this. Even the elders in here at Christchurch Shieldsworth have differing views on this subject. There are two different positions taken on the subject of remarriage. Both, I believe, very, very strongly, are legitimate biblical positions, which we recognise as legitimate biblical positions, and we do not judge, and we do not feel judged by each of the individual positions. Let me say that again because I think it is so important that we're clear on this. Both positions, I believe, and I will show you hopefully that they're both legitimate biblical positions. I can't wait to get to heaven and ask it, you know, please tell me what. But there we go. Both legitimate positions, which we recognise as legitimate positions. And here's the critical point we do not judge and we do not feel judged by each other's individual legitimate biblical positions. Now that lack of unanimity is a reflection of the evangelical church worldwide. I'll give you one example. In, in the Gospel Coalition, which is a big kind of uh, gathering of uh, Christians in America, um, the people on the council uh, who run the Gospel Coalition, some of the biggest names of, within the evangelical world, hold differing positions. One view, let me go through the two positions. <clears throat> One view that understands that divorce and remarriage are biblically permitted when a partner is adulterous or when a partner deserts. That is, if the divorce is understood as legitimate biblically, then remarriage is then possible. That's one view. The second view, the other position understands that while divorce may at times be unavoidable, all remarriage while the partners are living, is wrong. Now, we'll look at the disputed passages in a moment, but some, and I think it's disappointing, some turn to history to try and make their arguments for either position. 
Uh, let me show you uh, the tension that occurs when you do that. Remarriage, for example, after divorce was enshrined in what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is pretty much an established document. Uh, Post-Reformation is kind of 1647 it was written. Uh, and much of what we understand in church, uh, and our kind of foundations of our faith is found in that document. Article 24, paragraph 5 says this. In case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after a divorce to marry another. As if the offending party were dead. So many, many people for the last 500 years have understood if, if divorce uh, legitimately, biblically, uh, you can remarry. But interestingly, for the first five centuries of the church, among Christians, all Greek writers and all Latin writers, with the exception of one, agree that remarriage following divorce for any reason is adulterous. That was what we call a more absolutist position. But it's interesting though, the early church fathers who were in that time they held all sorts of strange views about marriage and, and divorce. In fact, uh, a number of them, uh, very well-known ones, uh, wouldn't allow remarriage for any reason whatsoever, whether your husband or wife died. So I think wherever you go historically, I don't think you can if you like, establish your argument any stronger. So let's look at the passage. I think that's the best way, place to go. Let me firstly show you how some understand remarriage as permitted when and only when divorce is legitimately biblical. Turn back, if you, if you can, with me to Mark chapter 10. It's on your sheets there, if you want to look at it there. And verse 11 and 12 is the, uh, if you like, the, the difficult and the verses that are pertinent to this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. It seems plain, doesn't it? Remarriage is seen here as adultery. It seems there are no exceptions. The word for adultery used here is moikam. Uh, in the Greek, it occurs many times in the New Testament, and always in that restricted sense of immoral sexual activity with a person married to someone else. However, in Jewish law, remarriage was valid if the grounds of divorce were valid. But if the divorce was invalid, then the second marriage was considered adulterous. And that is the context here in Mark 10. They teach the law, the Pharisees coming and quizzing Jesus on that Old Testament law. And so you have to ask, what is going on here in Mark chapter 10? Now, many think that, uh, one position thinks, sorry, that Jesus is not reinventing the law of the Old Testament. Rather, what he's doing here with this statement is he's, he's if you like, um, correcting the Pharisees. So here, what the Pharisees are doing is looking to divorce without reference to the whole law. And Jesus is correcting them here in verse 10, uh, sorry, 11 and 12, saying, if you divorce in that way, when you remarry, you're committing adultery. So many argue remarriage is permitted if the divorce is biblically permitted. Added to, that, added to this position, people would argue that the exception clauses to, for divorce in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 suggest or imply that remarriage is permitted. Look with me at Matthew 19, if you can, on your sheets there. Verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, 
commits adultery. So if someone marries after a, after a divorce, uh, remarries that is, that, um, that wouldn't be biblically committed, uh, permitted. They are committing adultery except when they've had a, a legitimate divorce. That is because of adultery. The innocent party at that point is allowed to remarry. Now the argument surrounding this verse centres around the word for sometimes translated marital unfaithfulness. Here in our translations, it's sexual immorality. That's the Greek word, porneia. You understand where that comes from. That's a general term, a very catch-all term uh, for all kinds of sexual immorality. And you have to ask the question of this passage, is Jesus really saying that when we look lustfully at another person walking down the street, that that is a ground for divorce? Now, many scholars argue that because the Greek word, the moikia word, which is the more uh, restricted word of adultery, is not used in Matthew 19, as Jesus uses elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, then this ex- um, exception clause seems to contradict what he says in Mark 10 and the parallel passage in Luke 19. But some argue that Jesus uses the general kind of sexual morality word here in this context because, again, he's referring to Deuteronomy 24 in Mark 10 and therefore there's a parallel use of the word indecency, sexual morality. He's kind of paralleling those two there. And also... He's speaking in the context of the marriage relationship. And so sexual immorality, the use of the word pornea there, is is specifically uh, speaking of adultery in the context of a marriage. Many, I'm concluding here, if you're not following, I'll conclude. Many therefore think that this exception in Matthew 19 is assumed as Jesus speaks in Mark 10. And in Matthew, the pornea word used is spoken in the context of marriage, assuming adultery. Now, that's, if you like, what Jesus says in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But what about 1 Corinthians 7? Turn your eyes down to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. Because there we need to understand what is being said of remarriage there. One position, I'm still on this first position... Uh, that allows remarriage, they would say of 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15 that that allows remarriage. It says if someone leaves the marriage, that is, deserts the marriage, the spouse is not bound. And that phrase, not bound, is understood by the, the kind of covenant regulation of the law and is therefore they are free then to marry, remarry, after a legitimate divorce. Now, that is one understanding of marriage and re, uh, divorce and remarriage. If biblically legitimate, that is the divorce is biblically legitimate on the grounds of sexual immorality within the marriage context and desertion, they're free to remarry. That is the majority understanding, but let us not, because that is the majority, let not cloud our judgment. doesn't mean it's right, just because simply more people believe that. Now let's go to the other position, if you can, uh, very quickly. We sometimes call this the absolutist or non-dissoluble union position. Just so you know the phraseology. Basically means you keep going until the person dies. Not dissoluble. They understand these passages in this way. They would turn to Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 12, and the parallel passage in Luke 16. They say, that is clear, isn't it? Anyone who remarries commits adultery. 
That's very simple, if you, if you take it in that way. You, you, you kind of don't look at the context, but you say, what Jesus states in, in those passages is clear. Then likewise, they turn to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, and understand that a husband and wife are bound, look at the word there in verse uh, 39 of 1 Corinthians 7, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Therefore, there are no exceptions. Now, the question is, what do they have to do with 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15? You'll see there that the one who is deserted is not bound. So in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, it says they're bound until the spouse dies. But in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, it says they're not bound if deserted. Now, the way they get around that, or work around that, I'm not saying it's a get around, it's a, it's a very carefully thought through uh, argument. They would say that the word for, there's a different word being used, and there is a different word in the original for the word bound. A word called dulu is used instead of the more common word for bound used in verse 39, which is deo. They conclude, therefore, that the husband and wife are bound until death. And the one deserted is not bound, not bound to stop a divorce. They can legitimately divorce. But it's, a, if you like, a lighter word of bound, and therefore they cannot remarry. They also have to look at Matthew 19 as to referring only to divorce and say that the exception clause within Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 does not permit remarriage. It's only talking and only referring to divorce. They are the two arguments uh, and two positions. Within our eldership, we hold both of those positions and we do not judge each each other for those and we respect one another uh, and the consciences uh, of each other. Let me conclude with eight conclusions. One, God's original intention in his creation of marriage is that it is to be lifelong and permanent. But because of the reality of human sin and failure, God allows divorce. Point two. There are occasions when human hardness of heart so deeply wrongs another that divorce could loom as a better alternative than remaining married. For example, with persistent physical or psychological abuse in a marriage, it is not adultery and it is not desertion true but if a spouse is abusing they are not being united and one flesh with their spouse and they're continually failing their covenant responsibility and even then forgiveness and restoration should be the aim but family and church elders should protect and therefore withdraw someone who has been persistently abused from that marriage home and therefore by virtue of that essential preservation of life, the abuser has deserted their spouse through their actions. Jesus agreed in Mark 10:5 that God made this concession of such hardness of heart. Thirdly, Jesus explicitly identifies sexual immorality as a valid ground for divorce, and Paul explicitly identified abandonment or desertion by an unbeliever as another ground for valid divorce. I think I'm also persuaded that both would have assumed that material neglect and emotional neglect 
based on Exodus chapter 21 verse 11 would also be valid grounds as well. We can talk about that later if you want. Verse 4, point 4, sorry. Christians ought to fight for marriage and strive to achieve God's ideal whether married or not. Point 5. Christians who are struggling in marriage should employ as many strategies as possible or feasible to save their marriage. You should go to counselling, uh, talk it through with friends, pray it through, everything possible. Sixthly, Christians should generally not be the one to initiate divorce unless, one, marriage vows have been violated, two, extensive forgiveness has been extended in the view of general, genuine repentance, and thirdly, the vow breaker stubbornly refuses to repent or change their actions. Seventhly, when divorce has occurred against someone, the first thing we should prayerfully consider is the possibility of reconciliation. We should never, ever consider a quick divorce. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and 11, I think would be clear on that. Eighthly, lastly, if anyone has legitimately divorced for biblical concessions and reasons, they must first consider the gift of singleness That is a happier circumstance, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 40. Secondly, they must weigh the passages that speak about remarriage after divorce, seek wisdom from others, and with a clear conscience, remain single or be open to remarriage. Clear conscience is really important there, that you've examined the biblical passages and you've come to a conclusion, not with what your gut is saying, but what your conscience is telling you as revealed through God's wisdom in the word. Thirdly, in both marriage and remarriage, a Christian should only seek to marry another Christian. I think that's plainly obvious. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 or 2 Corinthians 6 14. One word about the role of elders and deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and verse 12 and Titus 1, 6 says that an elder or deacon must be faithful to their wife. Many understand that to read that marital unfaithfulness disqualifies uh, an elder or deacon. And I would agree. Uh, at Christchurch Hillsfield, elders hold to both views of remarriage. And we do respect each other and uh, each other's views, and we will not force each other to act against our consciences. I have said enough. I'm conscious that I'm sure there are many questions. Um, but I'm also aware, very aware of the time. And I think it is right and appropriate we do the most important thing and show our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ um, by sharing uh, the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to hand over to Ash.